So today's message will come from uh, Matthew 5. I'll be reading through the, the entire Beatitudes, but uh, today we'll be focusing on, on 1 through 5 mainly. And so if you could turn to uh, Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning. It truly is good to be back with the people of God after the act of God that kept us from gathering last week with the, uh, the beautiful snow. And um, it's the right time of year, so I, I am thankful this time of year for the nice thick blanket of snow uh, and that um, he brought us back safely again. If you would, join with me in prayer once more as we prepare to approach the words of the living God. Father, it is an incredible blessing that we have your word in our hands. It is a very weighty task to seek to give the sense, following the example of those that have come before, to speak from your word and then speak the truth into the situations and lives of your people to show what it means, what it meant when it was, your word was written, what it means now, how to apply it to our lives, to speak so that your spirit might conform each of us day by day into the greater likeness of your son. Father, I am I'm so thankful that you have promised to work through the preaching of your word. I'm so thankful that you are merciful. I'm so thankful that you love your people more than I ever could, and you desire their good more than I could ever even comprehend. So Father, bless your people through your word. Build us up into truth. May we have unity, and that unity be centered on what is true, what is everlasting, and what is beautiful, and what is pure. Pray all these things confidently in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this week we are going to begin going through the Sermon on the Mount as part of our systematic study through the Gospel according to Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. Well, the Gospel of Matthew contains five different major teaching sections, each of them preceded and followed by a, a um, section of narrative describing the actions and the life of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of these sections, and it is the largest of them. And it is found in Matthew's Gospel just after Jesus begins his public earthly ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have an occasion where Jesus was teaching the crowd. If you remember from our text before, from a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is going throughout all of Galilee. He was healing all sickness, all infirmities, all maladies of the body and the soul, casting out demons, and he was preaching to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And we know that that's not the only thing Jesus ever taught, was just repent for the kingdom of his heaven is at hand. That was a thrust of it, though. And what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is one of those occasions in his travels in Galilee, we get to see a glimpse of exactly what our Lord taught the crowds that followed him around. At this point in his earthly ministry, Jesus' core of disciples was, was still being developed including both the 12, whom he would call disciples, who we know as the 12 disciples, as well as many others who heard his message and accepted his radical call to follow him. So because of that, a good number of the people that were following Jesus and coming out to him were true disciples. They were people who had already accepted this proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. They had repented of their sin. They had embraced the reign of God on this earth. But of course, there were many who had not. There were many people, multitudes of people, coming up to Jesus simply because they wanted to see the spectacle for themselves. Or they wanted to experience healing, which is a very natural and understandable reason to go. If you hear there is somebody who is healing every sickness, that everywhere he goes, sickness and disease is banished from the land, of course, you're going to want to go to Jesus if you are sick. So there were many who weren't following because they believed, because they embraced the kingdom, but because they wanted what he had to give. And to these, Jesus would continue his exhortation that he picked up from John the Baptist before him to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, it was already very difficult for him to escape the constant crowds of people that surrounded him. And because of that, if Jesus wanted to have a more intimate setting with his disciples or those who were close to him, he was forced to have to withdraw, to pull back to a secluded, secluded place. Sometimes that meant getting in a boat and crossing the sea. Or other times like this, where he would draw into the hills. That's precisely what Matthew tells us Jesus did in our passage this morning. Well, it is most likely that this passage, these chapters 5 through 7 that we call the Sermon on the Mount, took place over quite some time. It could have been over several hours or maybe even multiple days. As we think that, remember, the other part of what his ministry was was not just teaching, it was healing. So it could have taken place over a lengthy period of time. We see that Jesus initially withdrew with his disciples. Yet by the end of this sermon or by the end of this teaching, as he continued to teach, large crowds surrounded him and found him, and he could not escape them as people came looking for them. Many of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount will be paralleled later on in Matthew, or in others, the other synoptic, synoptic, synoptic that's easy for me to say, Gospels of Mark and Luke. And of course, that repetition is perfectly natural, and we should expect it. It's, it's absurd to think that as Jesus traveled every place within Galilee, that he wouldn't teach the same things as he went from place to place. He spoke what is true, and truth doesn't change. And these people were largely in very similar circumstances, so the message would have been the same, and he would have been teaching the same types of things again and again, using the same kind of metaphors, the same kind of parables and expressions. If we think about it, following the announcement of the kingdom of heaven, that's the big announcement from John the Baptist and then Jesus after him, following that announcement that the kingdom was here, the people would have been desperate to understand, to know if they might be able to enter that kingdom, what the, the bringing on of that kingdom meant for them. They would want to know, were they righteous enough to enter that kingdom? Before this kingdom, the only righteousness the people knew was the righteousness of the Pharisees. And everybody knew that they couldn't measure up to the standard of the Pharisees. But what about this new kingdom? What about this new king? This new reign? Well, according to commentator R.T. France, the Sermon on the Mount served as a messianic manifesto for Matthew's audience. It was a point to set out the unique demands 
that were given by the one who could claim absolute authority over all the people and over all the world. Well, if you're not already aware, the standard of the new kingdom didn't make things easier. Under the reign of the Son of God, perfection became the standard. Not the high benchmark of the Pharisees that none of the people could make already. Perfection became the standard. And it will be the wonder of the gospel for us to be able to see and for the people of that time to be able to hear why that was good news, why it was good for them, and why it is good for us, why it is good for everybody who believes that the standard of the kingdom is perfection. So the teachings of Jesus were designed to show how a person who was right with God would live. The, to first describe what a true disciple of Christ is, and then to show how they lived, how it affected their lives. The Sermon on the Mount begins with what we commonly call the Beatitudes in the first ten verses of chapter 5. We're going to spend a few weeks looking at these verses and the paradoxical character of Jesus' statements as he reverses the common convention and the values of society. Well, these verses are called the Beatitudes because of the Latin word for blessed, which comes from the Greek word makarios. Often people translate this word as, as happy, or say that it means the same thing as being happy. But makarios does not give the sense that a person feels happy, but rather that they are in a situation that others should want to share in, at least a situation that others should want to share in if they knew the big picture, if they could see the whole story. It represents an objective reality that the person is in a happy position rather than that they're experiencing a subjective feeling. A person can be makarios, can be blessed or in that happy situation and not even know it. Though the ministry of Jesus had a huge impact on the masses, countless people were healed of disease and sickness. The masses benefited from the, the ministry of Christ. The entire landscape was changed because of the ministry of Christ. Even so, Jesus desired to pour himself in a unique way into those who had accepted the radical call of discipleship, to those who had left everything behind to follow him. It was to these that Jesus would explain what the kingdom of heaven was really about. Well, Matthew tells us in the beginning of our passage this morning that Jesus withdrew into the hills and then sat down to teach those who were gathered with him there. If you, if you look up the, the parallel passages in Luke, you'll see that Luke talked about him going to a flat area or a plain area. Those two are not necessarily in contradiction, especially if you think it sounds like a contradiction. If you look at other translations, which say that Jesus went up into the mountains, the best translation is he went into the hill country, went up into the hills, and within the midst of hills, you will find flat areas. So it is no contradiction to say that Jesus withdrew into the hills and found a flat area, which was a convenient place for him to sit and teach his disciples. So don't, don't be confused if you see in different accounts um, things not immediately seem to match up. As Jesus sat down and opened his mouth to instruct his disciples, he fulfilled the classic role of a rabbi among his disciples, of a rabbinic teacher. Sitting before his disciples, Jesus placed Jesus in a familiar and intimate setting of a teacher and his students, rather than in the demanding manner of a general rallying the troops. Of course, as Jesus continued to teach, the crowds would follow, and as Jesus goes on, he would begin to address them as well at points. Well, as Jesus taught, he showed that the righteousness that mattered, the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, was not that of the Pharisees. He gave the, new people, the people a new paradigm of what it meant to be right with God. 
For remember, as we've talked about the Pharisees before, they concerned themselves only with the outward appearance. They worked very hard to look holy, to look set apart, to look righteous, to look better than everybody else around them. However, Jesus proclaimed a righteousness that the Pharisees could not fake. He proclaimed a righteousness that was not found on the surface alone. It was not just how you could make yourself look, but it was one that flowed out from the heart. No amount of actions can fake or overcome what is in the heart. The righteousness that Jesus proclaimed truly was a paradox. On the one hand, it removed the harsh yoke of the Pharisees and their stringent demands that they made on the people. Yet on the other hand, the demands of Christ were much more difficult. As I said before, the demands of righteousness in the kingdom is perfection. Because the righteousness that made one right with God could not be achieved by any amount of strain or desire. Because the righteousness that God desired was that of the heart. And it is only by the grace of God that a heart of stone that we are all born in sin with can be turned into a heart of flesh that beats for the living God. Well, the first of Jesus' Beatitudes was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in the first 10 verses of Matthew 5, we find eight such statements like this. Blessed are, for they shall. The first and last of these statements are a little bit unique among the number. Rather than promise something that the people will receive, it is said that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes begin and end with the declaration that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who possess these characteristics. It belongs to those who are described in these verses. Another way to say it might be that if you are not these things, then you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been preaching belongs to those whose righteousness looks like this. Of course, the bad news is that if these characteristics do not describe you, then you will not enter the kingdom. The bad news is that the demands of the entrance into the kingdom are so high that you could not possibly hope to achieve them yourself. Not only that, but apart from the grace of God and the working of His Spirit, you won't even be able to want to do what would be required to get in. And of course, that is some pretty bad news for anyone who is listening that might want to count and depend on their own righteousness. Anyone who wants to depend on their own worth, their own standing before God, who might want to demand entrance in the kingdom on their own merits. But the good news is that even though we have nothing to offer for admission, God would do, and He has done, all that is required. The good news is only good news to those whom this first blessing is directed, those who are poor of spirit. You see, to be poor of spirit is to, to know, to really understand in your depths that we have nothing to bring to the table. It is to know that we are completely, utterly, spiritually bankrupt before God. We are both totally unworthy of the kingdom and completely dependent on grace if we are to enter in. To be poor of spirit is not to lack courage. Poor in spirit is not weakness of character. Rather, it is recognizing our lowly state before the Almighty God. When Jesus spoke of those who were poor in spirit, he was actually speaking of people who had a positive orientation to God. Because the correct view of man and of God is that God is mighty and God is holy, and man is wicked and weak. 
that God would be right and just to destroy us and throw us into hell for all eternity without any offer, without any hope, without any chance. That is all that we are owed. And that is all that we have earned. So that is what it means to be poor in spirit. It recognizes our fallen reality, and it causes us to look to God for everything. It means realizing that we have nothing to bring to the table with to bargain. As I believe Jonathan Edwards put it, we bring nothing to the table for salvation, but the sin that makes it necessary. For God to damn and destroy us would be just, and it would be righteous. Make no mistake about that. God would not be lacking mercy, would not be lacking grace, would not be lacking justice, would not be lacking goodness if he simply damned us all and cast us into hell. He would lack nothing that makes him the good and great God that he is. Yet, in his love and mercy and grace, he makes a way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who truly know their need will have any place before God in Christ. This heartfelt, God-given spiritual alignment is in direct contradiction to that of sin and pride. The opposite of being poor in spirit is being arrogant, being self-confident before God. It is to believe that we are good enough, to believe that we deserve the blessings of God. Does that remind you of anybody that we have read about in the gospel? Well, in our day, the belief that men are basically good and need only a few minor adjustments lies at complete opposition to being poor in spirit. The Bible does not tell us that men are essentially good. Anybody that says that is deluded or lying. Man is not essentially good. The Bible tells us that we are all born as God-hating sinners who deserve the eternal wrath of God. And it is a lie straight from the pit of hell that leads us to believe that we possess any righteousness of our own, to lead us to believe that God is somehow obligated to save us, obligated to act for us rather than to destroy us. The kingdom of heaven belongs only to those who by God's grace have understood their complete, total, perfect need and who have been saved by grace. Salvation is wholly an act of God's grace and mercy. Don't ever allow yourself to be fooled into thinking that there was anything about you that contributed or anything about you that caused God to desire you. We must be poor in spirit. We must never lose sight of our complete dependence on the work of God, that if God could somehow break his word, could somehow release his hands and just let us go to our own desires, we would fall in an instant. We are totally always dependent on the loving kindness, the grace, the mercy of God. Only when we are poor in spirit will the kingdom of heaven belong to us. The second beatitude that Jesus gives is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Of course, this verse clearly illustrates a danger in just taking one piece of a passage in isolation. Because to say that those who are mourning are happy or experiencing a, pos a positive emotional experience is nonsense. If that's how we're going to understand what blessed means, 
then, then happy and joyful and excited are those who mourn? Well, that, that's nonsense. The happiness of those who mourn, the happy situation that they find themselves in, the situation that others would want to join in if they just knew the big picture, is that they will be comforted with a real, a lasting, and effectual comfort. The truth is that in this world, all men, everybody will feel loss. Everybody will have cause to mourn. But not all men will mourn for the right reasons. And certainly, not all men will find comfort. Surely not comfort that will actually abide and soothe. The proclamation, this proclamation of blessedness recalls the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 63, or sorry, 61, verses 1 through 3. We read there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Of course, Isaiah was not telling the people that they were blessed because they were brokenhearted, afflicted, and in prison. Isaiah proclaimed comfort because of what God had promised to do. Even though the people in Isaiah's day were in a very unhappy situation, they were in a place that others would want to be in if they knew the whole story. If they had eyes to see the big picture of what God was going to do, everyone would want to be in their place to have a God that would bring salvation the way that Israel's God brought salvation. God was going to do something magnificent in the land. Well, what about as Jesus was preaching these verses? What was the crowd that Jesus was addressing supposed to mourn? Remember, Jesus was preaching to the children of Israel. The godly remnant of Jesus' day wept because of the humiliation of Israel. They mourned for the lowest state of their nation. They were in agony because of just what brought their nation down to this lowly state. Sin, the idolatry, the faithlessness. Because these people, they did not, like the Pharisees, believe that they deserved God's favor. The Pharisees who believed that God was obligated to destroy their enemies and to put them in a place of prominence because of their righteousness. Those who were counted blessed because of their mourning were mourning the presence and the fruit of sin their own sin, and the sin of the nation. I wonder, what reaction do you think that John the Baptist and Jesus after him expected when they proclaimed the nearness of the kingdom of heaven to the sons of Israel? I, th I think that we want this to be an immediate reaction of joy. We want it to be an immediate reaction of excitement that salvation was at hand. And to all who accepted God's message, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven was surely and is surely salvation. Yet I do not think that's what John expected or what Jesus expected was a reaction of excitement from those who are in Israel, at least not those who understood Things rightly. The reaction that would flow from anyone who was poor in spirit to the news that the kingdom of heaven was at hand would have been mourning and a contrite heart. Because Israel was far from what she needed to be. The godly knew that Israel was not prepared for the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the reign of God on this earth. 
for the kingdom of God to arrive while Israel was in the sad state that she was in meant that her, meant that her sins would not bring about salvation, but it would bring about her doom. A doom that was very close at hand as the axe was already at the roots. The godly remnant among the people would have wept for their nation even as they experienced comfort in the Savior who is the Son of God who had been sent among them. Beloved, it is not simply good enough to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. It is those who see it and who mourn over it that are counted blessed. Knowing that we are sinners is not the same as mourning over sin. It is quite easy to accept that we are not perfect. It is a, another thing entirely to, to weep and mourn over the sin in our lives. Well, some might ask, why would anyone want to weep over their sin? And to the person who might ask that question, I would fear that they did not really understand the gravity of their sin. Why does knowledge of sin before God cause us to weep? Well, it is not simply that we lament the effects of the sin in our lives. Even the pagans do that. You don't have to look very far to find someone weeping over the consequences of their sin. It doesn't take the work of God in someone's life to make them feel the immediate effects of their actions and lament that they became ensnared in whatever caused their downfall. A person who, who truly mourns over their sin does not maintain a victim mentality. They do not blame their situation on their parents, their lack of privilege, or their culture. True mourning of sin looks at the damage that it has done to our relationship with the Creator. It sees the gap that it is creating between us and our God. And it knows that we have nothing and no one to blame but ourselves for our desperate condition. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who truly see the greatness of their offense against God, and rather than count on their own false righteousness, they fall on their knees and they weep, because they will be comforted. Their comfort will not come from anything in this world, and they will not be comforted as the world comforts. The world comforts those in mourning by seeking to mask their shame. The world comforts by seeking to raise man's self-esteem in our self-image. The world comforts you by making much of you. Yet God comforts not by worrying about your self-esteem, but focusing rather on how well you esteem God. God is more concerned with your perception of God than your healthy perception of yourself. God comforts by making much of His Son, not by making much of you. Those who have no part in the kingdom of heaven will have no comfort from God. In fact, they would reject His comfort in favor of the comfort of the world anyway. The carnal man seeks comfort in celebrating himself. The believer seeks comfort in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. May we mourn over our sin. May we look to God for comfort rather than to compound our sin in the pursuit of worldly comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus' words of blessing to those who are meek recalls David's words in Psalm 37, 7 through 11. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Well, David was reminding the righteous that God was in control. Even though it might have seemed to them then, even though it might often seem to us now, that the wicked prosper, that justice is forgotten, David reminded them that God would cut off the wicked from the land. Those who did not fear God, and instead of boasted in their schemes, would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They would not inherit the land. It would belong to those who in faithfulness waited upon the Lord. To the humble, the meek, the gentle, they would inherit the land and delight abundantly in prosperity. Well, to be meek isn't primarily speaking of those who are oppressed, those who are taken advantage of, and those who have no ability to defend themselves. They surely can be meek as well. But to be meek more directly speaks to those who are not arrogant, those who do not boast in themselves, and those who are not oppressive to others. Meekness requires a certain amount of self-control. It is the ability to not act, to not defend ourselves when it is in our power to do so. It demands that a person can wait upon the Lord, that they can experience injustice, and remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord, to God alone. It takes a great amount of self-control to refrain from responding to a perceived insult or injury with patience and kindness. To be truly meek implies that we are not only adept at restraining our anger when we feel insulted, but it further demands that we are free from malice and vengeance. We don't have a, a vengeful spirit towards others as if we were the center of the universe and how dare they not understand that and act accordingly. But to the Greek world, meekness, gentleness, these were considered vices rather than virtues. The Greeks celebrated personal honor, personal reputation. They fought wars over it. They killed people over it. They would think any sort of meekness was nothing but pure weakness. And to the Greeks, weakness was immoral. To be a meek person, one must be poor in spirit and mourn. They must have such a clear understanding of their own sin that they do not get upset when somebody else sees it as well. It is one thing to recognize that we are personally, spiritually bankrupt before God. It is quite another to respond with gentleness when others tell us of our bankruptcy. To understand that no matter what others say about us, the truth is far worse than they know. Meekness requires us to have a, such a clear view of ourselves that it will express itself even in our response to others. Of course, American culture is not so different from the ancient Greek culture. In our culture as well, it is the bold, it is the confident that are praised. It is seen as a virtue to have the kind of determination to do whatever it takes to fulfill your dreams, to do whatever it takes to be who and what you want to be. We advocate for that mindset that if you don't fight for yourself, who will? We celebrate every single-minded pursuit of self-fulfillment. We are taught not only to see ourselves as the center of the universe, but to fight against anyone that would dare get in our way of being and doing and becoming what we want. Anything and anyone that does not help us with that quest 
is an obstacle that must be overcome or a weight that must be cut away. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Those who mourn find comforts. But what about the meek? It says that they shall inherit the earth. Let me ask, does that sound impossible? Do you believe Jesus when he makes promises like this? Does a promise like this even make sense when we look around and see the brokenness and the hurt and the wickedness that are running rampant in the world around us? Well, on what do we base our confidence when a promise is made? See, it is not enough for somebody to really want something for us. There are many things that I really want for my kids. Yet for all my wanting, they are outside my power to give. Either they are outside of my ability to obtain or achieve. But what about those things that are in my possession or within my ability? Is something guaranteed to my children just because I have the ability to give it? Of course not. There are many things that are within my ability to give that are not within my desire to give. There are many things that if I did give would be foolish or harmful, destructive. And so, the desire of the promise maker and the ability of the promise maker are not enough, each on their own, to give us confidence that a promise made will be fulfilled. Well, why am I belaboring that point? It's because we need to know, like we really need to know whether or not we can trust in the promises of Christ. Right? That is important for us to be sure of. We have to know, can we trust when Christ makes us a promise that he will fulfill it? Because, beloved, we often live as though we don't really believe that Jesus will do what he said he will do. That means we either must doubt his desire to do what he has promised, or we doubt his ability to do so. Right? It's got to be one of those two. Because if either one of those conditions are not met, we cannot rely on a promise that is given. So when you consider the promises of Christ, consider his ability and his desire to do what he has said through these two truths. A, he has endured the fullness of the wrath of the Father over your sin. He gave his life to save yours. If he has already proven his desire to do you good to that extreme, then there is nothing he could promise for our good that we would have any reason to doubt his intentions behind. He has already paid the ultimate price, suffered the ultimate agony for us, for our good, according to his promise. We could never doubt his intentions. And B, the second condition is concerning his ability to do what he has promised, to do what he desires to do. So, do you know Jesus as the Bible presents him? Or do you know only the weak, limp-wristed, effeminate, too polite to ever risk violating anyone's autonomy or self-determinism, Jesus, presented by faithless churches and the godless culture that these churches try so hard not to offend. The Jesus of the Bible is the eternal Son of God. The Jesus of the Bible is the one who came with a winnowing fork in his hand, ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. All authority. He is the one who came in judgment on Israel, just as he said he would, that that generation saw judgment fall. He is the victorious champion who took on human flesh, who defeated sin and death. 
There's nothing that he is unable to give his people when he desires to give it to him. He is the creator of the universe. Let's take a step back again as we draw near to a close. The Beatitudes are not a list of the types of people who enter the kingdom of heaven. They describe each citizen of the kingdom. Taken as a whole, they present a person whose entire orientation towards God is one of brokenness over themselves and thankfulness for what God has done, of turning away from sin, turning away from their flesh, and turning towards God. They present a re reality with no, that no amount of willpower can copy or pretend. Jesus looked out at those whom he loved, those who had accepted his message and forsook everything for him. And in compassion and love, he looked at them and called them blessed because in him they truly were objectively in that happy place, that happy situation, that if anybody just had eyes to see, they would want to be where those disciples were in that place of brokenness and dependence. God's demand for those who would be saved are beyond human ability. The carnal man not only fails to meet that perfect standard of Christ, but the carnal man becomes angry that someone would dare make a claim on them. In the world, they cannot even measure up to their own standards that they create for themselves day by day. In contrast, the believer sees the, the standard of God, and in poverty of spirit, they weep over their condition. So if the standard is so high, who can reach it? To that we must reply, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There's one important truth that I want each of us to remember as we walk away from here when we see the high demands of Scripture. One truth that I want you to grasp and hold on to. That everything that God demands in us, He will accomplish in us and through us. Hold on to that truth that is freeing. Everything that God demands of us, He will accomplish in us and through us. There is nothing that God demands of a sinner for salvation that he himself doesn't perform. All of salvation, the beginning, the end, the cause, and the effect is an act of the grace of God. So how can God, a God of mercy and love, make such steep demands on those he would call? Because in his holiness... He has done everything that is required to make them perfect. We all know that we cannot do all that we ought to do. And beloved, there is so much freedom in knowing that God can and must and will do all that He requires in us. If you know you are not poor in spirit, Cry out to God and ask Him to reveal your position before Him apart from Christ. If you are not poor in spirit, ask God to show you the blackness of your heart and the desperate state of your condition that He might show you how completely dependent you are on the grace of Christ. If you do not mourn over your sin, ask God to reveal the horror of your sins to you. Not so that you would be depressed and defeated and stay broken always, but so that you might be comforted by God instead of continuing to look for the world, to the world for comfort. Because the world will try to make much of us as it comforts us, yet God will make much of His Son and what His Son has done for us and who we are in His Son. Reject the worldly comfort that keeps you in your sin.
and cling to the righteousness of Christ and you will be comforted. If you are not meek and cannot restrain yourself from measuring out justice on your own behalf, then cry out to God for mercy. Confess your lack of faith in His promises that, that He will make things right, that He sees every injustice done under the sun and not a single thing will be left unaddressed. Trust in His promises. The wicked might rule the earth today, but it is God's world, and His people will inherit the earth. So know your need, mourn your sin, and look to God for comfort. Father, I pray that You would Take these words, these passages that are probably all too familiar to us. So familiar that we might glaze over or think we don't really need to listen or focus or that they don't hold anything for us. Yet use these words to break us of any pride, to make us weep over sin that we have let remain in our lives to be broken of our self-confidence, of our self-determinism, of our love of the world. Help us to trust in your promises, Father, that in you all these things are yes and amen. And in that confidence, be able to rest and be comforted, knowing that all things are ours in Christ. This life, this life on earth that we experience now is, is but a vapor. We are living for eternity. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved of Christ, we come now to the table of our Lord. This is the table offered to those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. It is a table to given to those who have embraced the reign of Christ over all things and by the power of His Spirit are walking in radical obedience to His call. So I invite the poor in spirits, those who mourn, those who are meek to partake. If you understand what it means to trust in Christ for your salvation, if you have repented of your sin and followed in obedience, if you are walking with Him in the newness of life that He offers, then you are worthy. If you are not sure, or you do not understand, or your conscience bids you to wait until you have been made right with God, then I urge you to remain a passive observer. This table is set as a grace for our faith and a blessing for the church, yet it is a means of condemnation to those who take it in an unworthy manner. So to those who are faithfully walking with Christ, and trusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation, I invite you to come and take. And when we have all received and are back in our seats, we will take of them together.